Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen even a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Thank you, Lindsay. Didn't the entire worship team do a good job this morning? Thank you. I'm so grateful you clap. If you didn't clap after... Uh, I said that I wouldn't know what to do as I fumbled for my nose. So grateful that you are here to celebrate Easter with us. Happy Easter. We are so excited to celebrate all that God has done uh, for us and through us. And it is a special Sunday. But the truth is, if Easter Sunday seems like a special Sunday, we think every Sunday is a special Sunday. Every Sunday is an opportunity for us to commemorate the death of Jesus, celebrate the life of Jesus, and lean in to see what God will accomplish in and through his people. So we are so grateful uh, that you are here this week and every week to celebrate with us. Um, At Eastside, we exist as a church to lead others to experience immeasurably more. That's what we're all about. We want to lead people to experience what only God can accomplish in their life and through their life. And so this week and every week as we dive into God's word, as we survey the the, uh, ancient text, that is exactly what we're looking for, the Holy Spirit to bring to life. How can we experience 
God today. That's our hope and that's our prayer. So that's where we're going. If you have your Bibles with you, it's Luke chapter 24. Uh, If you're using one of our Bibles that was handed to you on the way in, I think it's page 980. I looked at that a few minutes ago. If I'm not, it's close to that. Luke chapter 24. And we're actually going to start in verse 1. I told everybody we were going to start in verse 13, but the story is just too good. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, go all the way to verse 35. And I promise I will do my best to make it the best three hours of your Sunday. (laughs) If you're new, there's nervous laughter. If you've been here before, it's really nervous laughter right now. If Jesus can rise from the dead on on Easter Sunday, I can make it through this text in 30 to 45 minutes. Luke chapter 4, 24, verse 1 says, this is, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, who we would later find out are some of the women who had followed Jesus, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And so this is the first day of the week. This is the very first Easter Sunday. And what do the women do, the women who had been with Jesus do that very first Easter Sunday? Well, they wake up early, they get ready, and they head to the tomb to honor Jesus. They've prepared spices, burial spices, to help cover the, let's be honest, the stink of Jesus' decaying body. But if we were honest, it's a little late, isn't it? I mean, it's day three. Jesus was crucified on on Friday. He was buried on Friday night. He was laid in a tomb in a hot climate all day Saturday. Now it's Sunday morning. There's a lot of religious regulations that kept him from getting there sooner. But nonetheless, the women head to the tomb a little too late. Jesus' body would already be breaking down. It would already be in the process of uh, decomposition. It seems a little pointless, not to mention... There was a man named Nicodemus who buried Jesus on Friday night in this tomb. And as he buried Jesus, he not only wrapped him in burial cloths, he covered him in about 75 pounds of burial ointment, which kind of begs the question. Every year we read this story, we just accept that the Easter story starts with these women going to the tomb. But why were the women going to the tomb in the first place if it seems kind of pointless? Like, is there a chance that they were just going through the motions Like, is it it a chance that they wanted to honor Jesus? They knew they were supposed to honor Jesus. This was the first opportunity they had to honor Jesus. But it seemed like when they got there, they would be too late. The body would already be breaking down. It would already smell. And their spices wouldn't do too much. Even if it wouldn't make much of a difference, they wanted to show up and honor Jesus. Have you ever felt like that? Like, honest, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I know this is Easter Sunday. Everyone is here really excited, expecting God to work in their life. But have you ever felt like those women might have felt the very first Easter? Like, they got up early. They got ready. They got the things they prepared. They went to the tomb. They showed up a little late. You ever been a little late to church? If you're a little late to church, you'll fit in well at Eastside. Uh, We start sometime between 1030 and 1045. And we just encourage you to be here to celebrate what God is doing But the women show up a little late, it feels like maybe it's not going to make too much of a difference. Maybe you come to church sometimes, and like you know you really should be here. There's something stirring within you that feels like, I want to honor God. Like I want to do what I think God wants me to do. I want to show up, but I'm not sure if it's going to make much of a difference. And maybe that's even been your experience as you've grown up in church or come to church or off and on have been trying to explore faith. Like you show up to honor God, you wake up early, you get your Bible, you get your family together, which is never easy on Sunday morning, right? You come to church and it just feels like, man, it just doesn't make much of a difference. It doesn't seem to make much of a difference in my family life. Like I figured if I came to faith and followed Jesus or at least came to church, it would make a difference in my family. It doesn't seem to be like making much of a difference. Or maybe it's not making much of a difference in your marriage. Like your marriage is worse off than it's ever been. And you've been trying. You've been here, you know, every six or eight weeks seemingly consistently. 
not making much of a difference in your marriage. Maybe it's not making much of a difference in your longing for a marriage. You just want to be married and you show up at church, you try to honor God, it doesn't seem like much, much of a difference. Seems like it's not making much of a difference in your uh, physical problems you're facing or the financial difficulties that are laying before you. You're willing to go through the motions, but honestly, if you were honest, you don't really have a tremendous expectation to experience much from God. If that's how you feel, like if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company. Because I'm pretty sure the women in the first century, they felt that way. They went to the tomb, they got up early, they prepared the spices, they went to the tomb, they wanted to honor Jesus, but they weren't sure that when they got there, what they did to honor Jesus was going to make much of a difference. His body was already breaking down. One thing I know for certain is they weren't expecting to experience Jesus raised from the dead. How do we know that? Because they were taking burial spices that they had prepared. They packed burial spices to treat the body of Jesus. And so the women show up at dawn on the first day of the week, the very first Easter Sunday. They went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Verse 2 says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it says, while they were perplexed about this. I think this is becoming one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. Perplexed. I've been reading through the New Testament in my prayer time, and I see it over and over that the followers of Jesus are perplexed. As they try to make disciples and plant churches, they're perplexed. And as God works in their midst, they're perplexed, both for good and bad. It just seems like all the people who are close to Jesus find themselves perplexed. And I love that. These women are trying to figure out what in the world took place. Like, they saw Jesus crucified on a cross. We know many of them were there as Jesus took his last breath. They saw the soldiers pierce his side and blood and water come forth. They saw his body taken down. I'm sure they followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus on that Friday night. They prepared the body and laid it to the tomb, which might be why the women went back on Sunday morning, because they didn't trust the men to do a good job burying the body of Jesus. I don't know. But they saw him laid there. They saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb. They saw the soldiers who were stationed there. They went home to practice to observe the Sabbath, and they show up first light Sunday morning, anxious to roll the stone away to see Jesus. And when they get there, the stone is already rolled away, the body is gone, and they're left wondering, they're perplexed, where did the body go? Where was Jesus? Here's what we learn almost 2,000 years later as we look back at their story. It's okay to be perplexed by Jesus. It's okay to wonder what God is doing at times in your life. It's even okay to wonder where God is. The question we have to wrestle with, and I think the question we're going to be held responsible for, is what do we do when we ask those questions? Like, what do we do when we ask the questions? It's not wrong to ask the questions of God. It's not wrong to wonder, God, why is my life going this way? Why is my relationships going this way? God, why, is, why are my relationships not going this way? God, I wonder where you are. I wonder what you are doing. But the question we're going to have to wrestle with is, how do we respond when we ask those questions? I am naturally an inquisitive person. Anyone else just like to know things? Like, I can drive Carissa, my wife, nuts because I want to know everything. And she'll often say, like, what difference does it make? But it makes a difference to me. I don't, even if I can't do anything with the information, I want to know it. A few years ago, we bought our very first home. And uh, one of the first things I did when we bought our home, this is really weird, but I just wanted to know, like, I went through and tested every light switch. Like, I wanted to know what does each light switch turn on and what does it turn off. And it was pretty self-explanatory. You flip a switch, a light comes on, flip a switch, you know, maybe change a few bulbs. But there's one light switch in our garage that I cannot for the life of me figure out what it does. And so like I flip it off, uh, there's two switches that don't seem to do anything. It's like I flip one off and I'm back and forth trying to figure this out. I've punched holes in my roof trying to figure out like where the wires go and what they do. 
And it just drives me nuts. And so I looked online. I told Chris, I'm trying to figure out who owned the house before us. We didn't get to meet them when we were buying the house. I was like, surely they know. Carissa says, they didn't meet you for a reason, Adam. They don't want to know you. And I was like, no, but they know who this, they know what this light switch does. I've got to know. I'm like punching bricks out of the garage. I've literally got two holes in the roof. I'm like trying to chase these wires. As if I found the wires, I know what they did. But nonetheless, it drives me nuts. It kind of makes me wonder, how do we sometimes settle for not knowing? Like, I've got to know. Maybe you're wired differently but I've got to know. The women needed to know what happened to Jesus. And so when they were perplexed, when they were wondering what was going on, they leaned into the tomb. And I think we have an opportunity when we have questions about God and we have questions about faith, we can, like the women, lean in to learn more or we can lean out and go on our way. The women leaned in, they literally leaned in to learn more about Jesus. And the story goes on, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Two angels appeared, and as they were frightened and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. There is a whole sermon right there, but for the sake of time, we'll save that next year. Come back, Easter 2023, we'll unpack that. He goes on, remember how he told you. Remember how Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee, while Jesus was still teaching and preaching and traveling and performing miracles? Remember how he said the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead? And they remembered his words. You know, it kind of does befuddle me. I don't like to give Bible characters a hard time because I don't know if I went through time and was in their day what I would do. But don't you think when Jesus kept saying, hey, I'm headed to the cross, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised again, someone would have taken notes. Like someone would have remembered. But it seems like every time they show up, they're perplexed. Like where did Jesus go? He told you. He was going to the Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be thrown in a tomb. He's going to be raised from the dead. The Son of Man would be crucified on a cross and raised to life. And the angels show up. And I wonder sometimes if the angels, the very first Easter, were like, what is wrong with these humans? Jesus told them. And the women lean in and they're like, where's Jesus? We expected him to be here. And the angels are like, why? He told you he wasn't going to be here. But nonetheless, it took angels appearing for them to remember his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, the disciples of Jesus, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. This is pretty good evidence that this was a real historical event. It's pretty good evidence for, for several different reasons. Because if the followers of Jesus in those days were trying to make up a fanciful story about a risen Savior, the last people they would list as eyewitnesses would be women. Because in those days, women had very little respect. They couldn't serve as a witness in court. And so it would do them no good to say women were the first people, first people to see the stone rolled away, to see the body missing. It's also pretty good evidence because Luke lists them by name. And we forget sometimes when we read this story 2,000 years later that Luke wrote this story just a handful of years after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it was beginning to be circulated, the story about a risen Savior, and the church had already grown and exploded onto the scene. And if people were reading this text, they could go and find Mary Magdalene, her first and last name listed there, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. These were specific names to serve as eyewitnesses. And if this wasn't true, all it would take would be one person to go ask Mary Magdalene, hey, did you go to the tomb the first day of the week? Yeah. Were you really that dumb to wonder where Jesus was? She's like, no, no, I knew. It's like, well, that's not the story. No, she said, yeah, I had no idea. I was perplexed. I was confused. I was wondering what in the world was going on with Jesus. And they certainly wouldn't include this next part if they were making the story up. Verse 11 says, but these words, the words of the angels, the good news, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, these words 
seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And they have an empty tomb. They have Jesus who said, I'm going to go to a tomb. I'm going to lay there for a few days. I'm going to get out of the tomb. And still, they do not believe. To these women, it says it seemed an idle tale. It seemed too good to be true. They knew what Jesus said. They remembered his words. But honestly, it simply seemed too good to be true. Could Jesus, the one they loved and followed and trusted, really raise from the dead? And again, I wonder if nearly 2,000 years later, as we try to follow and figure out Jesus, if we don't do the same thing. We might not admit it. We might not even realize it. But like these women, we know the Easter story. I'm sure if I were to put a felt board up here and had, you know, Jesus in a tomb and some Roman soldiers, you guys could put the pieces in place somewhere along the way. You heard the story that Jesus lived life nearly 2,000 years ago, that he was crucified on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, that he was buried in a tomb, that three days later he rose from the dead. There must be something in you that believes it because you're here today to celebrate the work that God has accomplished. But did it really sink in? And only you can answer that question. Like, did the story really sink in to your soul and change your life? Or to you, like the women in the very first Easter, does it seem like an idle tale? Yeah, I remember the words of Jesus. I remember Sunday school, vacation Bible school growing up. I know the story. I think I believe the story, maybe, but maybe it's too good to be true. If that's how we approach the story, it's not going to make much of a difference. And here's the thing that I fear. We're going to miss out on the life that God has called us to live, and we're going to miss out on Jesus because the story is going to seem too good to be true. Now, if that's convicting for you, how can we move from disbelief to belief? How, like the women in the first century, can we lean in and put our trust in Jesus in such a way that it changes everything about us? I'm glad you asked the question, because we're going to go there in verse 13. Luke says this. He says, that very day. So Luke is skipping a couple hours, but that very day, later Easter afternoon, Easter first edition, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened among them. So Luke skips ahead a little bit to Easter afternoon. There's two guys, two inconspicuous guys whose names we don't even know at this point in the story. They were talking about all the things that had taken place as they're walking away from the place where the gospel had taken place, and they're walking away from Jerusalem, which is incredibly convicting for me this week because I realize it's possible to talk a lot about Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not. I make a living talking a lot about Jesus, but it's possible to talk a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. These guys are walking away from the place where Jesus was raised from the dead. There's an empty tomb behind them. They're talking about these things. They're contemplating them, but they don't know Jesus. It's possible even to talk a lot about Jesus and literally walk away from the place where Jesus was. But still, Jesus drew near. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love this. I I say that every, every verse. I really love this part. I love how nonchalant Jesus' resurrection story is in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, we know how the story ends. Spoiler alert, Jesus raised from the dead, the church is launched, 2,000 years later we're still celebrating. But if we were reading this for the very first time this morning, all we would know at this point of the story, if we hadn't read ahead, is that Jesus lived an incredibly impressive life, that he performed miracles and gathered a crowd and taught taught incredible teachings that changed the trajectory of, of human history, that he was arrested and tried on trumped-up charges, that he was crucified on a, on a criminal's cross, that he was buried in a tomb. 
Then on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb. They found no one there. Something like angels appeared and told them that he had risen, but the women were perplexed because no one had eyes on Jesus. These men were walking away from that place, having a conversation. And then Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it just literally says, who just defeated death, it says, and Jesus drew near and went with them. Now, if you had just defeated death, what would your entrance back into humanity be like? Here's like major league baseball players don't walk to home plate without walk-up music. Could we at least get some like walk-up music, like a, a choir of heavenly hosts appear? They were there when Jesus was born. Why aren't they there as Jesus is raised from the dead? Like I guarantee you if I was Jesus, the first place I would show up would be Pilate's palace. And just say, I'm back. Like, can you imagine the look on Pilate's face? Maybe go have a conversation. It was a little late to have a conversation with Judas, but nonetheless, there would be some people that treated me differently than they should have a few days before. I promise you I would have visited them. There would have been a legion of angels with me. For goodness sake, the guy just defeated death uh, this week. I can't win a foosball game without making sure everybody in my vicinity knows how good I am at foosball. This week, a few of us from the church, we went to uh, a funeral in Missouri for a dear friend. And um, in between the, f- the funeral things and everything that goes with it, we found a foosball table. And I love foosball. I grew up in a church that taught about Jesus and had foosball. So it's like taking me back to youth group and Holy Week. It was just the perfect setting. So it was uh, my brother and some other folks, and I beat all of them in foosball. And I did not let them forget it. And every opportunity I had to talk about, I mean, I lost one game. It was kind of a fluke, but I didn't count that. Every opportunity I had, every opportunity I had to remind them, I did. We were sitting at the funeral, waiting for the funeral to start. I leaned over. I said, hey, remember how I beat you last night in foosball? Carissa literally hit me in the ribs. So that's the most inappropriate time to say that. Nonetheless, I can't win without making sure everybody knows. Here, Jesus literally defeated death. And all it says is Jesus drew near. Jesus drew near and he walked with them. This is who Jesus was. This is why Jesus came. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the disciples, Jesus' closest friends and followers near the end of his life, they're trying to figure out how to jockey for position and promote themselves one above the other. And they're trying to get ahead the way the world still tries to get ahead. And Jesus looks at them and he begins saying, you guys are acting just like the rest of the world. It shall not be so among you, Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not only who Jesus was, this is why Jesus came. He came to draw near to us. He came to draw us out of our sin, to offer forgiveness and salvation. He didn't come for all the fanfare. He came, as he said in Luke chapter 19, to seek and to save the lost. And here he draws near to two inconspicuous guys who are confused and contemplative and having a conversation, which is incredibly good news. Because if you're anything like me and you're wondering about Jesus and at times even walking away from Jesus, Jesus wants to draw near to you. James, the brother of Jesus, write a letter to the church a few years after this. He would say, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Jesus doesn't have to present himself with a ton of fanfare. Some of the best experiences of God are these moments where you're questioning, you're confused, you're contemplating the things about God, and Jesus draws near. The one who defeated death on your behalf, who conquered sin once and for all, so you would no longer be a slave to sin, will draw you near to him. Verse 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
Um, this is a hard verse, and they've been trying to figure out for 2,000 years why their eyes were kept. Maybe Jesus' body was so beaten and mangled from the crucifixion they couldn't recognize him. Maybe they were blinded by divine inter- intervention, which makes us uncomfortable, but we know that God has to open our eyes to see who he really is. Or maybe, just maybe, they were kept from seeing Jesus because they didn't have enough faith in Jesus. They weren't really looking for Jesus to be who Jesus says he was. They didn't trust that he was who he says he was or did what he said he would do. And so when Jesus was in their midst, they couldn't see who was right before their eyes. So Jesus engages them. I, I think this is good news, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 17, look how this story unfolds. If we're asking the question, I'm asking the question for you. If we want to experience Jesus for ourselves, if, if we don't want to settle for just learning about Jesus or listening to stories about him, but if we want to experience Jesus, see if Jesus really is who Jesus said he was this Easter Sunday, how do we lean in to experience Jesus? I think there's insight right here. And Jesus said to them, verse 17, what is the conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. Now, Jesus didn't have to. He didn't need them to tell them, right? Jesus knows everything about everyone, always, right? Jesus knew what was going on. Then one of them said, named Cleopas, he answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? The event that took place in Jerusalem would have been about like 9-11. Everyone knew what took place. Everyone was talking about it. And he said to him, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was a prophet, mighty and word indeed before God and all the people, how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped, past tense, that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happen. Hope was lost. And here's the thing I think we see is Jesus didn't really need them to tell them, tell him what they were thinking. But Jesus needed them to talk to him to figure out what they were thinking. They started just saying, we're really sad and these events took place. Don't you know? Everyone knows. And they kind of got down to the heart of the issue. They got down to what was troubling their heart. I mean, we really hoped in Jesus. These guys probably followed Jesus. They weren't part of the 12, but there's a pretty good chance they were part of the the, the 72 that were sent out to share the good news of Jesus. They had done work for Jesus. They tried to follow Jesus. They leaned in. They listened. They learned. And here Jesus was dead. And they said, man, hope is lost. I guess Jesus isn't who I thought he was. I thought he would be the one to redeem. And they lean in and they talk. And the more they talk to Jesus, the more they process who Jesus is, the closer they get to understanding the real heart of the issue. So how do we experience Jesus? We talk to Jesus. Now, it may seem obvious Right? It may seem obvious, but one of the most profound ways we experience Jesus for ourselves is through prayer. Don't settle for just talking about Jesus, but find opportunities to talk to Jesus. In fact, one of the things we don't talk about all the time with the crucifixion and Easter is when Jesus was crucified on a cross. You remember how the whole place went dark and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that had separated the people of God from the place and the presence of God was torn in two so that through Jesus' finished work on the cross, we would have access to the holy of holies. That at any point, we don't have to go to a priest or a prophet or anyone else, a preacher or a pastor. We can go simply to God. It doesn't have to be fancy. We don't have to have the right words. We just simply pray and God hears. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 explains this so well. Therefore, brothers, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with a pure heart. 
Jesus made it possible for us to draw near to him. He made it possible for God to hear our prayers without any intercessor in between. And he invites us to talk with him. Uh, Just as these men on the road talked with Jesus, we can talk with Jesus. And the more we talk to Jesus, the more we'll understand who Jesus is. So what is the practical application this Easter? It's really profound. You guys are going to be glad you came. Pray. Like, that is the thing. These guys, Jesus is there in their midst. They they had the opportunity to talk to Jesus, and so they did. They started talking to Jesus. They began sharing their heart, the the circumstances of their life. These are the things that are going on around me, and they just kind of share with Jesus. Don't you know? You ever prayed like that? Don't you know, Jesus? This is what's going on in my life, and Jesus continues to ask questions, not because he needs to know, but because he wants them to lean in and share their life with him, and so they continue to say, and they get to the heart of the issue, man, we've lost hope. We've lost hope in you, Jesus. Pray. Develop a rhythm, a regular rhythm, a relationship with God in prayer. We could talk about this so much, but it doesn't have to be profound. If you need help praying, uh, we would be happy to pray with you uh, after church. be happy to help you figure out rhythms of prayer. But lean in, develop a regular daily rhythm of prayer. Accept the invitation to the throne room of God. So draw near with confidence to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The more they prayed, the more they processed, the closer they got to Jesus. Listen to how the, 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 the conversation continued. Verse 22. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. And so then now they're starting to talk about these women that we just read about. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when, they did, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see, which is kind of the point, Right? Like that, they got so close. And I wonder what this conversation was like. Jesus is walking with them and they're walking with him and they've shared their heart. Jesus, we've lost hope. We really thought, well, I didn't say Jesus. We've lost hope. We thought Jesus was going to do something. He didn't show up the way we had hoped he'd show up. And Jesus continues to ask questions. He continues to lean in because he knows these guys. And they say, in fact, there's some really, there's, there's like false hope this morning. Some women went to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there, but no one's found him. And they got so close and I wonder if Jesus isn't just waiting. They're getting closer and closer. And when they finish, like, but they did not see. And Jesus is just like, that's it? Like, I'm Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He says this. He says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just talking to Jesus isn't enough. We should start with prayer. There's profound power in prayer, but talking to Jesus isn't enough. Sometimes, not sometimes, every day we have to let Jesus talk to us. The disciples were talking to Jesus and they got so close, but they still missed Jesus. They needed to listen to let Jesus talk to them, and Jesus did. Sure, nonetheless, he, he, I think he opened a, uh, they didn't have a Bible, he opened the Old Testament scrolls and he began to tell them, like, don't you know? Can you not see like the entirety of scripture pointed to me? And he starts to do a Bible study with them. He takes them back to the felt board and reminding them of all of these stories that they learned growing up, that they weren't just simple stories to be celebrated, but that every single story packed into the Old Testament scriptures was pointing to Jesus, was pointing to the person of Jesus in this moment. I don't know where Jesus started and um, perhaps it was Genesis chapter one, verse 26. He started with creation when God said, let us make man in our image. You got really nervous when I started with creation. We'll do this really fast. So the entire Old Testament in 17 minutes. Let us make man in our image. And Jesus explained, do you remember the story you read about, about creation? When, when I said, let us make man in our image, I am one of the us. 
And God created all of creation by, the, by his voice. But when he got to man, he gathered the dirt, the Adam, uh, of dirt, which means dirt, and breathed, gathered the dirt. He created the shape of man. He breathed into it the ruah of life, his spirit. Meaning when man was created, unlike rest of creation, God was there face to face with his creation. He was created for this, this opportunity to live in a personal and intimate relationship, a face-to-face relationship with God. Just a few short minutes later, it seems like, Adam and Eve separated themselves from God. They had one rule, right? Everything in the garden was do this, do this, do this. Just don't eat that. What did Adam and Eve do by page three of the Bible? They ate the thing they weren't supposed to eat. They, they positioned themselves against God. They separate, they fractured the relationship. Sin, they, they separated themselves from God. Sin fractured everything from a macro scale. The weather has been fractuate, fractured by sin. A micro scale, even our cells and our bodies betray us. So God was going to kick them out of the garden, but before he kicked them out of the garden, he made a covering for sin. He killed an animal. Blood was shed for the very first time to cover their shame and their sin. An animal was killed. And as Jesus is recounting this story, he says to these guys, perhaps, that was me. Like, that was me. I was the one who killed. I, it was representative of my blood that would one day be shed to, uh, to cover your sin. And he maybe fast forwards to Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God, and because of his faith in God, his life was counted as righteousness before God goes to the nation that grew out of Abraham, Israel, and how Israel went into Egypt, and God brought his people of Israel out of Egypt, and because Pharaoh, who ruled Egypt, was so uh, frustrating and prideful, he wouldn't let the people go. God inflicted the people of Egypt with ten plagues. The tenth and final plague was the, the killing of the firstborn, but for the people of Israel, the blood of the Passover lamb was shed. It was put on the doorpost of the, the house so that their, their sons would be killed, and Jesus is saying, like, that was me. That wasn't just a story you learned in vacation Bible school growing up, that was me. I am the Passover lamb, the cover for your sin. And fast forward to Moses at Mount Sinai getting the law. He says it's not just a bunch of rules to be uh, to regulate the way you live life. It is the heart of God that you are a people set apart for the purpose and the work of God for a relationship with God. Leviticus chapter 16, part of that law, the day of atonement. When the entire nation came together once a year to confess their sin, and the priest would take a lamb, a, a goat, and put the sin, symbolically put the sin of the nation after they confessed their sin on this goat, the scapegoat, and send it out to the wilderness. So as far as the east was from the west, they would watch their sin be taken away. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the one. I was, that was there to point to me. I'm the one who takes away the sin. Another lamb would be sacrificed on that day, and the priest would take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would anoint himself and then sprinkle the blood, sprinkle the altar with the blood of the lamb, so that when God looked down on his people and saw how they broke his law, he'd be covered by the blood of the lamb. Maybe flip to the Psalm, Psalm chapter 22, verse uh, 22, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these guys are saying, Jesus, wasn't that the verse, or wasn't that the verse Jesus quoted on the cross? Exactly. That was the describing the account of, a crucif- account of the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years before the life and the death of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 600 years of prophecy talking about when he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, by his stripes we have been healed. We could go on and on and on, but Jesus, as he walks with these guys, as he draws near, he takes the scripture and he, and he speaks to them. They've spoken to him and he speaks to them and he says, all of this found its fulfillment in me. I am the one. It's not enough just to talk to Jesus. We have to let Jesus talk to us. How do we experience immeasurably more? How do we experience Jesus? This is going to blow your mind. Um, You're going to feel really deceived. You say, I came to church on Easter Sunday. I got up early, got dressed, put on my Easter best, and the preacher told me to pray and read my Bible. But pray and read our Bible. Spend time with Jesus every day. Talk to him. Share the, the, the questions that you have. 
Share the parts of your heart where you're wondering, you're perplexed, you're confused, you're contemplative, and then open the scripture and let him speak to you. Now, it's hard to do this alone. In fact, I might suggest it's nearly impossible to do this alone. This is where the church comes in. We exist to lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. Let me finish this story and we'll wrap it up. They come to the place where they were going in Emmaus, and they invite Jesus in, and Jesus goes in with them, and Jesus always goes where he's invited. It says, when, verse 30, when he, set, he was at the table with them, Jesus sits at the table with them. He took the bread, he blessed it, he gave it to them. And then it says this, it says their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. These people knew the teaching of Jesus. They had seen Jesus before the crucifixion. They probably worked some for Jesus doing the work of ministry. But here, in this moment, they experienced for themselves Jesus and the difference that he could make. They experienced immeasurably more. This is why we exist. This is why the church on a large scale exists. But we say our mission statement here at Eastside is leading others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. We would love to invite you to join us, whether you're trying to figure out faith for the very first time or you've got more questions and it seems like God has answers or you're really, really hitting your stride and wanting to follow Jesus. Here's, we're, not, we're not just trying to give you something to do, pray and read your Bible. We're inviting you into an intimate relationship with the God who created you, who sustained you, and who saved you by the sacrifice of Christ on a cross and has given you victory with Jesus. Hear what the Apostle Paul said to a church in Ephesus in the first century. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's not talking about going through the motions. He's not talking about a bunch of religious regulations that you have to try to figure out and follow on your own. He's saying, my prayer for the church, for the people of God, is that they would invite God to dwell in their hearts by putting their faith in God. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's praying for the church through the power of the Spirit to know what they can't possibly know, the depth of God's love for them, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Jesus didn't rise from the dead to invite us to go through the motions. He didn't invite, rise from the dead just inviting us to honor him, wondering if it's going to make a difference or not. He rose from the dead so that we could enjoy an intimate relationship like we were created for with our Savior. I love the way the story goes. As soon as they recognize Jesus, he vanishes from their sight. They said to each other, verse 32, did our, not our hearts burn within us? It's describing conviction. While he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures, he, they're saying, was it not something not stirring within us as God began to explain the scriptures? Almost like Jesus is describing who we were created to be. And they rose that same hour. Remember, it's nighttime at this point. They returned seven miles, ran seven miles to Jerusalem. They found the 11. And those who were with them gathered together. So they found the disciples of Jesus. And they said, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And it's this really cool moment. If we read too fast, we'll read right past it. But you have Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. And they meet Jesus. And it all makes sense. It all clicks. And God opens 
open their eyes and they experience Jesus for themselves. They, they run seven miles back to Jerusalem. They find the 11, they knock on the door and they let him in. And I can only imagine that the frantic moments, like a two-year-old's birthday party, that Cleopas is there, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And what we don't see in Luke's gospel is Jesus had already appeared to Simon and to Mary Magdalene. And the church is beginning to form and they're saying, you're right, you're right, we saw it and we saw it. We've experienced Jesus and you've experienced Jesus. And they begin to compare notes and Jesus told us this and it all starting to make sense. And they told what happened on the road, that he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And in this moment, the church, the people of God are beginning to form because of the work of God on the cross, being raised from the dead the very first Easter. It was never meant to be about going through the motions. It was an invitation. Jesus died to extend an invitation back, <clears throat> excuse me, to an in invitation back to an intimate relationship with him. And for 2,000 years, God has been drawing near and walking with people who are trying to figure out faith. For 2,000 years, he's provided the fullness of scriptures so that we can understand that everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is a promise for us to enjoy. Paul would say, I pray, man, I just pray because my words aren't enough that somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you will be filled with the fullness of God, that his Holy Spirit will breathe new life into you, that you'll never think this was about empty religion. And then he goes on and he says this, and it's my favorite passage in all of scripture. Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly, immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How many generations have passed from 33 AD? Jesus is still receiving glory. Today they estimate between 2.2 and 2.8 billion people around the world will gather to make much of Jesus. What started with a small experience on the road to Emmaus, a few women going to the tomb, all began to make sense when they experienced Jesus for themselves. That is the invitation of Christ. It's the invitation of Eastside. It is the invitation of the church that you would experience Jesus for yourself. You can do that on your own. You can pray. Even if you've never prayed before, just begin to say, God, this is what's on my heart. See where he works. You can open the scripture. He begin to speak to you. But we want to extend an invitation. That party that took place when those two guys showed up at Jerusalem and they all begin to realize for the very first time, this is real. Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we do every Sunday. So we do every week as we gather in community groups. We talk about the things of God and the work of God. Don't try to figure out faith alone. Walk with us as we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and your grace. What a privilege it is to gather together as your people all these years later, celebrating the same miracle that the church celebrated the very first Easter that we serve a Savior who defeated death, who rose victorious, but even in his victory was humble enough come alongside and walk with those who seemed like they were going through the motions trying to figure this all out. God, I hate to speak for everyone here, but we're not smart enough. We're not smart enough to put the pieces together on our own. I know that as much as I study this text, I still have more questions sometimes than I have answers, but here's what I, I pray. I pray that you, like the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you would open our eyes, that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do. It's not by my teaching, it's not even by the songs we sing, it's as we make much of you, as we make you known, you will make yourself known to us. Father, wherever we find ourselves on this journey, if we have been faithfully following you, Lord, give us new insight, insight into who you are and the work you've accomplished on us. Lord, show us some of the sins that you've forgiven us for that we didn't even realize we had committed. 
that we might be even more grateful, even more excited to share that good news. And Father, if we're here for the first time or the first time in a long time trying to figure out faith, give us insight into who you are, that you step down from heaven to earth, live an ordinary, humble life, let yourself be crucified on a cross, rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, so that we don't just celebrate an ancient story, we celebrate new life that is ours in Christ. Father, I pray for a blessing that everyone's here this morning. I pray for a blessing over your church, that as this sinks into our soul, that it changes our life, that we get to experience you. And then, Father, I pray that you would unleash from this small church on the east side of Orlando a movement that would transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando, that we wouldn't be able to open camp churches fast enough to accomplish the work that you've set before us. Father, accomplish the work that you came, lived, died, and rose to accomplish. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.